Good morning, I'm Adam Herman, and today we will be reading from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 24, which can be found on page 816 of the Pew Bibles, page 816. Matthew 11, verses 1 to 24. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, if we haven't met, sorry, I slipped to say good morning. Thank you for welcoming me and saying good morning as well. Hey, if we haven't met, I'm Chris, um, one of the pastors. Let me make a quick announcement and then tell you where we're going, and then I want to pray and jump into this text. Uh, announcement is simply that Easter is coming, which we're really excited about. I told you last week we're going to try to do two services that day to make space for people both to invite friends as well as for our kids volunteers to be able to actually go to a service. So we will have a 9 a.m. and a 10.30. Both those services will be the same. They'll both be about an hour. We're going to shorten it a little bit just so we can celebrate and say what's really clear about who Jesus is and what the resurrection is really about. So that's a fun opportunity for you to bring people, but also for you to sign up and serve. And so there's a link on our website that you can go to to kind of sign up for some hospitality roles to help us welcome people. In that first hour, we won't have child care at all at the 9 o'clock. And at the 1030, we're just going to have child care up to three years old. Again, so people can be in the service and we can make some more space for kids who might be coming and visiting. So there is a surprise for kids after the service. So if you check out the newsletter, I won't say it in the room here, but newsletter parents, check that out and you can help us kind of pull off that surprise. There's also going to be a surprise for parents that I won't tell you about that you can just be surprised on that day. So come invite some friends and then we'll celebrate either at 9 or at 1030 and we'd love for you to be able to come and serve one and then worship at the other. Okay, that's the announcement. Hey, I want to just kind of orient where we're going in this passage. It's actually a really long text. I struggled to figure out where to break this text up, and we're trying to shorten our sermons. And so if you're here going like, man, you just did 24 verses. We're going to be here all day long. Let me just kind of give you some hope. What I want to do is go across the top of this passage. So if you can imagine kind of two peaks on a landscape, what we have at the beginning of this text is John the Baptist and his wrestling with what he's seeing and what he's hearing about Jesus. And then we have these cities in verses 20 to 24, what they're seeing and what they're hearing and how they're wrestling with Jesus. So you really get two responses to what Jesus has been doing and what he's been saying. So the word deeds and works you saw kind of throughout that text. And so what I think Matthew wants us to see really is what do you do when what you expected Jesus to be and do is different than what you actually experience. One of those is redemptive doubt that John the Baptist kind of holds for us. And one of them is really dangerous unbelief that he says of these cities. So if you can imagine the question being asked this morning is, what do you do when what you thought Jesus was supposed to be for you and in this world and what it meant to follow him when that expectation isn't met? Where do you take that? What do you do with that? And so it's really a message about doubt, about redemptive doubt, about what do you do with that doubt? And so I want to pray into that because I realize that's not a question for those people or your neighbor. That's a question for you. Like all of us deal with doubt in different ways and in different times. Some of you, it has marked your entire adult life. Some of you, your earliest memories as a kid were rooted in doubt. Some of you, it's a new experience because there's fresh suffering. Some of you feel like it's been something that you've walked through and you've gained some ground on, but all of us deal with doubt. And so even just saying we're going to talk about that might trigger some stuff inside of you. And let me just say, I don't think we have to be afraid to just name that. In fact, naming what we're afraid of, naming what our doubts are, takes some of the power out of them. And Jesus doesn't seem afraid, and the Bible is not afraid to kind of put God's people on display and they're wrestling with doubt as examples for us and I think actually invitations for us. So so as I say, we're going to talk about doubt. I don't know how that hits you, but I would love just to pray for you and pray with you that God's word would kind of come into your heart in ways that heal and help and strengthen and maybe reorient you just a little bit. So let me pray for us as we dive into this text. 
Jesus, I just quickly want to ask for your help. The way you helped John the Baptist through his followers as they asked this question, the way you helped the crowd as you interpreted the situation, would you, would you help us? We have expectations. We've been interpreting things that we've seen for a long time. A lot of us carry fragments of ideas and truths and suffering and questions and longings kind of all in one big jagged bundle. So I just pray that you would speak to us this morning. I don't imagine one sermon is enough to kind of cover every question or every situation that my friends have, but would you speak in a profound and powerful way? And chiefly, would you welcome them to you with their doubts? So give us enough faith in you to believe that you can actually handle our doubts. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, hey, if you've been with us, we've been walking through Matthew in chapter 10. Jesus sends out his disciples on their first missionary journey, and he just says, hey, expect this to be tough, expect this to be difficult, expect this to be hard. And so John serves now as an example, really, of two things. One, an example of that hard. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're probably going to wind up in prison. If you follow me, you're probably going to be persecuted. If you follow me, people are probably going to hate you. And so John serves as an example. We just heard that warning. The very next scene is this kind of superstar follower of Jesus, the one who was the forerunner, telling people this is actually the Messiah, the one who baptized Jesus, the one who saw the Holy Spirit come down, the one who heard the voice of God, the one who actually is Jesus' cousin. And this is like quite the pedigree. This dude is in jail. So Jesus just said, if you follow me, you're going to face suffering. Exhibit A, John the Baptist. So he serves as an example for us of what it looks like for us to actually follow Jesus and face hard times. He also serves as an example for us of what to do when you're following Jesus and you face hard times and you come to this, spate of, uh, this place of doubt and unbelief. So that pedigree that John has is pretty remarkable. He's not unfamiliar with Jesus. In fact, from the time he was in the womb, other gospels tell us he, filled by the Holy Spirit, rejoices when him in his mother's womb meets Jesus in his mother's womb. These guys grew up together as cousins, and he knew the story. His dad, as a priest, had prepared him to know who the Messiah was. I mean, John knew all the answers to who Jesus was. He baptized him. Again, he heard the voice of God himself break in out of the clouds and say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. These are remarkable evidences of faith and proof of who Jesus is, which makes his question of, are you actually the one we're waiting for, or should we be looking for someone else all the more remarkable? Here is John, this one who's seen it all, done it all. He has all the background, and he, because his experiences and his expectations don't match what he thought was going to happen, are are struggling with doubt. And so as he hears, it says in verse 2, of the deeds of Christ, he's in jail, so he can't go. So he sends his disciples to go and ask, are you the one to come, or should we look for another? Now again, this is in contrast. Jump over across the page to verse 20. When Jesus talks about these other cities that he's been in and done these mighty works in, right? John has heard of these deeds. These people have actually seen his works, and they don't repent. They actually push away from Jesus. And Jesus says to them as a warning to us, hey, if the things that have been done in your communities were done in these Old Testament towns where God rained down fire from heaven and judgment, if they had seen what you had seen, they would have repented. 
So here's this choice in front of us. What do you do when what you long for, what you expected, what you hope would happen doesn't actually happen? And it's a question that you have to wrestle with, you, you get to wrestle with, and it's not just a question for believers. Because we're finite and live in a fallen and broken world, there's so much that we don't understand. There's things that we long for. Again, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, all of us deal with doubt. So, so the question this morning is, like, where do you take your doubts? Well, what, do you, what do you do with your doubts? So just, just take a second right now. If I'm asking you as a real question. When you doubt, what do you do? Do you escape? Do you double, double down and try harder? Do you feel a ton of shame like it's your fault? Do you, do you lash out in anger? Do you just give up in apathy? Do you look for some other like, alternative way, like this way didn't work, let me try another way? Like, What do you do when what you longed for and expected doesn't happen? Again, I think you can answer that question as someone who doesn't follow Jesus and someone who actually does follow Jesus. And you carry that question around, and then when things kind of hit the fan, things go bad, things are hard like they are for John here in jail, it's that moment of like loss and sadness and pain and frustration and confusion that that volume gets really turned up on those doubts. I think you carry like a low-grade doubt about yourself, about God, about others, about purpose, about the world. We have the kind of this existential question all of us carry, and then you throw some pain on top of that, you throw a pandemic on top of that. You throw transition on top of that. You throw intimate relationships that are hurting you on top of that. You throw questions about who you are on top of that. And all of a sudden, that doubt gets really, really, really elevated. And so in this moment, what we see is that John is an example for us of what, what do you do? How do you actually respond? And here's like the main idea I want to just give you. If you don't hear anything else, just kind of hold on to this. What John models for us in all of the questions and confusion, is that he brings his doubt to Jesus. He doesn't just sit with it in his own heart. He actually goes to Jesus through his friends. He takes his doubt to Jesus. And then he lets Jesus speak to his doubts from his word. You may not have noticed, but these little red letters from verses 4 to 5, Jesus is actually quoting part of the Old Testament. So here's the pattern that we see with the way John deals with doubt. He takes it to Jesus, and then he lets the Word of God actually speak to his doubts, which is huge. And that's in contrast to these ones who won't repent and don't believe. So they don't actually want Jesus to reorient their hearts. They think that they're fine. To have an unrepentant heart means I'm okay. Like it would be evidence of unbelief, which would put yourself at the center saying, I'm actually fine. Maybe I even see myself as my own savior or I'll find some way to get through this apart from God. I don't have to respond to him. So redemptive doubt takes all the doubt, all the questions, all the longings, all the stuff, and it brings it to Jesus. Dangerous unbelief sits in it, refuses to go to Jesus, won't actually question their heart, won't actually repent and turn, just sits in that pain themselves. So so doubt is not the problem. It's what you do with doubt. Everybody deals with doubt. And again, we could probably have lots of definitions of doubt. I'm using it this morning as that place where you have questions about what you thought was going to happen and then what actually takes place inside your life. So let's just kind of walk through what what John kind of models for us. Again, for him, he's in prison. He's in this space where like what he thought was going to happen isn't happening because his expectation was that Messiah was going to come as this warrior. 
He was going to come and actually overthrow Rome, set God's people free, and now he's in prison. It's not that the prophecies haven't been fulfilled of his birth or of his coming. All those things totally lined up. John saw it when they happened and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's problem now is what he expected was that Jesus was going to come in judgment. And instead of coming in judgment, John actually sits in judgment in this prison. It's not at all what he anticipated. So, so just for a moment, maybe it's not prison for you. Maybe it's the prayers you've prayed about unwanted sexual desire. Maybe it's the stuff you've longed for for your own children. Maybe it's the desire to be married that hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's the stuff about your job that you just lost that you've been wrestling with. Maybe it's the injustice that you face in your relationships. There's something, though, that is now keying for you. Wait, I thought this was going to be different if I followed after Jesus. I, I thought there would be things that were going to take place that were going to be different than this because John tells us in Matthew chapter 3 that this one who's coming is going to come and he's going to baptize with fire, which is judgment. And he has this winnowing fork. He's going to sort out believers and unbelievers. And what he's seen instead of judgment is actually mercy. Jesus is now healing and restoring. And so John's confused. I thought Messiah was going to come and clean house. You've come and you actually welcome sinners. You, you touch lepers. You're with the broken. This doesn't connect and doesn't fit. Now, at the end of the story, we realize what a beautiful thing that Jesus comes first in mercy. He's coming in judgment for sure when he comes again, but he first came in mercy to make a way for sinners to actually be reconciled to God. That is the good news of the gospel. And actually the place of Paul, or John's tension here is the place that we actually should celebrate that Jesus didn't meet our expectations of just coming in judgment, that he first came in mercy as a way to actually make a way for us to be made right with God. But, but for John, it creates just a ton of struggle and doubt. So again, faith is... Not the same as doubt. Doubt actually has this space where it can lead us towards faith. Faith and unbelief are the two opposites. And doubt sits in the middle. Doubt, doubt actually can go either direction. And it's a matter of where you take it, who you trust, what voice you're willing to listen to. So John, as our example, brings it straight to Jesus. So look with me again in verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another one? Again, that, that pain has created some doubt. And the Bible is actually full of examples of people that follow God that struggle with doubt. Actually, I think all of the characters of the Bible struggle with doubt. And maybe, maybe there's one or two that we just get a couple of verses on that we don't get to see much of their life. But, but doubt is all throughout the scriptures. We actually see people crying out like, both I believe and help me with my unbelief in the same Sentence And the way God responds sometimes is with this frustration of like, oh, I've told you this. Would you please respond in faith? But we actually see places in Jude where it says like to be patient with those who doubt. So, so what Jesus does in this moment kind of shows us the way God would respond if we were to bring our doubts to him. He doesn't throttle John. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't say you should know better. In fact, later on in this passage, he's going to say in verse 11, like, hey, there's none born of woman greater than John. 
So this doesn't like knock down his esteem in Jesus' eyes. This is actually an intimate relationship where he brings his whole heart to Jesus. And the way Jesus responds is actually with his words. Look with me in verse 4. Jesus answered them, his followers, John's disciples, that he had come. And he said, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. And now he's going to quote several passages from Isaiah. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't trip them up, and they refuse to believe because I'm actually bigger than what they thought, I think is what he means there in verse 6. So John's expectation was Messiah was going to come, and it was going to come and bring judgment. And there's a good reason for that. John knew his Bible, and lots of the expectations of the Messiah have in this space, like the expectation that God is going to come in judgment. So actually, some of these passages in Isaiah that Jesus is kind of quoting, we have Isaiah 35. It says this, strengthen the weak hands and and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. So John's expecting that. He'll come with recompense. He will come and he will save you. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped, and they, the lame shall be made to leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What the Bible actually said was that both were going to happen. That he was going to come and actually bring justice, and he was going to come and show mercy. Another passage would be Isaiah 61 that Jesus has on his mind as he's laying this out for John's followers to repeat back to John. Isaiah 61 verse 2 says this, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So that's it, right? This is what Jesus is going to come to do. The Messiah is going to come and bring vengeance. And then it goes on to say, To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness and planted of the Lord, that he may be glorified. John's problem wasn't that he didn't know what the Messiah was going to do. It was that he had too small of a view. And as the expectations aren't being met and the heat is turned on, John begins to rehearse just part of who God is and just part of what God was going to do in his heart. And instead of just keeping it there inside of his heart, he pulled it into the light so it could actually breathe and lose some of its power, and he brought it to Jesus. Have you been in a relationship before where you had an offense with somebody? And they, they rubbed you the wrong way. Maybe it was at work. Maybe it was with your family. They didn't return the email the way you thought they should. They didn't respond to the text the way you hoped. They, they snubbed you as they walked by you. You had this interaction and this encounter where it didn't go the way you hoped. And rather than bring it to them, you just kind of held on to that for a little bit. This is like early marriage. So, so for us in our marriage, like I'm too spiritual and too mature to bring petty frustrations to Adrian. So I just swallowed them and began to rehearse them. And began to say over and over again inside my heart, like she's the kind of person that does these kinds of things. And it's fine. I'm noble and loving. I will tolerate her. However, she keeps doing these things and I keep rehearsing them inside my heart. Now, you don't have to be married to have that experience, right? Where you've thought something about someone. And the longer it goes, you actually begin to kind of dehumanize them. And rather than wondering, like, I wonder what they meant by that, or I wonder what could have been going on inside their heart, you began to sit in court over them and say, I know exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it, and that's why they're a terrible person and unworthy of love. Now, you wouldn't, like, stand and say that, but in your heart, it's actually like a kind of slander that you repeat inside. 
But have you had the moment, though, where you felt all of that and you said, all right, enough of this. I have to go and just talk to that person. And then you go and it's super awkward and you're not sure how to break the ice because you felt this kind of slanderous thing inside your heart. And so maybe you come super self-righteous and you're, hey, I, I just want to like, speak truth to you. Or, or maybe you come actually really anxious and frustrated and they're nervous because you're nervous. Maybe it doesn't go great at the beginning, but you finally bring that tension to them. And as they give you their side of the story, as they tell you what was going on inside their heart, they tell you the frustration they were feeling or the sadness they were feeling or the confusion or, or just totally oblivious. Whatever it is that's going on, it adds to the narrative of that moment. They become more human. Your slander loses its power and you can actually move towards reconciliation. Have, have you had moments like that? Like online is killing us where you actually have no face-to-face interaction. We're just, we're dehumanizing each other, reducing us down to interactions and ideas and tweets and sentences and posts. And when we do that, we stop being curious about their humanity and wondering, like, what's going on there? I wonder where they're afraid, where they're sad, what's happening. And we find a lot of reason to actually hold them in contempt inside of our heart. So married, not married, coworker, whatever it is, you've had that experience. Okay, spiritually... You do that with God all the time. You have this expectation. He doesn't do or say or provide or interact with you or those around you in ways that you thought he would. And you first you ask the question and you kind of hold it inside your heart and, and maybe you pray for a little bit, but then you just begin to think about it, which is different than praying about it. And as you rehearse what you thought was going to happen and what God actually did, you can actually move to a place of slander inside your heart. And not dehumanizing God, but but de-deifying God, like not making him actually God. You begin to see God through a lens of the way you would do it if you were God. Have you said that before? Oh, oh, thank God he doesn't do what we would do, right? Because our finite lives and minds would actually explode if we tried to hold all this together, but we tend to look at God and say, if I was you, I would do blank. What John does is takes the power out of that inner narrative that no doubt in prison he would have been rehearsing. Like, I thought he was going to be this. I thought he was going to do that. He's quoting these passages to himself. I know he's a God of witness. I'm the one who said he's going to baptize with fire. I know he's got a winnowing fork. Why is he not using that? Maybe he's actually not the one we're looking for. And he had all this evidence, all these interactions with Jesus. He knew who Jesus was, and yet the dialogue had gotten to a place where he's so concerned because Jesus doesn't match his expectations. And instead of just sitting in that space and de-deifying God, he actually brings it to him. I don't know where you're at with your faith and what questions you've been like rehearsing for decades or days or weeks or pandemics. But I bet you've got questions about who God is, what he does, what he promised you that haven't actually gone the way you hoped they would. And what John is doing for us is giving us an example of bringing that to Jesus himself, kind of putting it in the light so that it takes some of the power out of it. And in that space, he actually then receives understanding from Jesus because Jesus wants to speak to that doubt. So you bring your doubt to Jesus, and then you open your heart to hearing from Jesus from his word to actually correct and redirect those things inside of you. And what Jesus says is not that he didn't come with judgment at all, not that he wasn't actually the king and judge. He adds to John's view more of who the Messiah is and what he came to do. It's not less than what John imagined. It's just more than what John imagined. John had this either-or kind of understanding, like either you're the Messiah or you're not. 
Either you're coming in judgment or we should look for somebody else. And Jesus throws this kind of both and at John. Oh, I am the Messiah and I came in mercy. I am the Messiah and I came to actually restore enemies. I am the Messiah and I came to keep all the promises of God, even the promises of God to come and show steadfast love and faithfulness to a rebellious, broken people. That's the kind of Messiah the Bible talks about. And in his pain and in his sadness and in his confusion and his imprisonment, John's view had gotten small. And God doesn't hold him in contempt for that, but he welcomes him to actually bring that small view into the light and let God's word begin to speak into it and expand that view of who God is. So so what Jesus does is he answers John is gives us hope that God's word actually has something to say about our doubts. You're not the first one to doubt that doubt. You're not the first one to actually struggle there. And here's the deal. Mercy is actually really complicated. The Bible is a story of God's everlasting love to a rebellious people. And it's pretty gnarly in points. There are moments where you're like, dang, I'm not sure you can say that. I'm not sure that should happen. Is that a guy I should follow or a guy that I should pity? Like you read all these different stories and you go like, what is going on here? But it's this long narrative of a God who's merciful working with the people that are rebellious. It is super complicated. You and I want to reduce God down to a, a series of black and white answers. And now I'm talking about now relative truth. I'm talking about a narrow view of God. He's either merciful or he's judge. And what Jesus says is, hey, in your life, I am doing both. What if the places where you're most struggling with God, where you feel like he's failed or hasn't actually come through, are actually the places where he is showing mercy to you and to those around you? You just examine for a moment. Jesus' answer to John is, I came to actually show mercy. A passage like 2 Peter 3 says to this taunt that Jesus isn't coming back. It's not real. Everything just keeps going on the way it's always been. We get this insight that God is holding back his second coming, which will be a coming of judgment, to give time for people to actually repent. It's because of mercy that God's allowing these things to kind of keep unfolding in our world in places where we actually experience a lot of pain. What if the spots where you are most jammed up, where you have the most questions, where you're most frustrated and feel like God has failed you the most are actually the places where he is showing mercy both to you and to those around you? Let's talk about overseas for a second. God has a desire to save Russian infantry soldiers. God has a desire to save Ukrainian people. I heard a story of one of our members who's in contact with people over there. and Someone came to faith in a bunker in Ukraine this week as they're hearing the good news of the gospel. And we say, God, why won't you stop this? And you should pray, God, stop this. Bring about justice and mercy. And then understand that the way he's bringing about mercy sometimes is in the middle of all of that brokenness. It's actually the places where you experience the most tension that God wants to show the people around you, like even those who are oppressing you, those who are hurting you, those who are harming you, God has a desire to show mercy to them. And we would look to Jesus' life as an example of that, right? He's the one who's crucified. He's the one who's beaten. He's the one who's betrayed. He's the one who is at the space of actually being tortured, and he's doing it for the sake of mercy for those around him. What, what, if, what if? Would you just entertain the idea, the way that Jesus answers John's disciples with this idea of, hey, yeah, I'm coming in vengeance, but first I'm coming in mercy, to hear your questions of your doubt and your faith, to hear Jesus say, hey, I'm actually coming with some sort of mercy in that space as well. 
I know it's super complicated. I don't know your story. I wouldn't dare presume from this place to speak into the details of your life. I'd love to over a cup of coffee. I'd love to listen to where you're at and see if we can find kind of God's hand in the middle of things. If we can look at what passages would actually shape the way you encounter this pain and the suffering. But for this moment, this generic example that John kind of provides for us, just to see that sometimes the very thing that you're frustrated with God about is the space where he is showing mercy. John says, why don't you come in judgment? Why don't you come and set me free? Oh, it's because I want to actually heal and open up blind eyes and let the lepers actually be cleansed. That's why I came the way I came That's why I'm working in your life the way that I'm working. And that pattern actually we see all throughout the scriptures. Okay, so I want to work through the rest of this text real fast. If that's the example, right? You have doubts, you bring them to Jesus. Jesus speaks to you from his word. I think there's two kind of reasons why we need to do that or two evidences in this text. And they come in the questions that Jesus asked. So in verse 7, Jesus says, hey, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? It's a question of expectation, What did you expect was going to happen? Did you think it was going to be this little bruised reed out there? Did you think it was going to be a prophet in soft clothing? No way. You can't be here a prophet speak truth. And John was dressed in camel's hair and ate locusts. And this is a dude you don't want to mess with. He said, you came out there to hear from God, and it was hard. And then he goes on to say, and it's always been a space where the kingdom has advanced, and there's been violence against the advancement of the kingdom, right? We'll see that on the cross as the ultimate expression. It's a question about expectations. And for Jesus to labor throughout the book of Matthew to help us understand the expectations of what it means to follow him is that it involves suffering. It's always been that way. And God is doing something redemptive in that suffering. So one of expectations. The second question he says, but what shall I compare this generation to? This is verse 16 of chapter 11. It's like a child sitting in the marketplace calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance and we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, doing the opposite. And they say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I think Jesus is naming here our struggle to interpret what we see. There's an expectation issue. What did you expect when you followed after me? You went out to the desert to hear from the prophet. What did you expect? It's always been through violence. It's always been prophets that speak hard truths. It's always been harsh clothes, not soft clothes. And when it comes to the way you see the world around you, you're like children who, who expect a sing God a song and he responds a certain way and then change the tune and sing it a different way and he responds that way. And you're as reliable as looking at the evidence of John's life and go, man, that dude's demon possessed. And then the opposite of that, you're like, well, you would expect that, be, oh, then that's the right one. When Jesus does the opposite, they actually say of Jesus, oh, you're a glutton and, and you're one who's a drunk and you actually engage with sinners in inappropriate ways. It's a question of interpretation. So here's the humbling space for us in our doubts to realize we struggle with expectations and we struggle with interpretation. Some have said our interpretational skills are as accurate as like a carnival mirror. We we look in to see what's happening and actually is distorted and twisted. We're amazing at observing things around us. We're not very good at interpreting what those things mean. Every parent will tell you this about their children. They see everything. But they don't always connect the dots the way you wish they would when they watch what they watch. Jesus says, hey, in the middle of your doubts, can you just open your eyes to the idea that God's word wants to correct your expectations? 
And it wants to speak at that space of how you interpret things, what, what you thought it was going to be like, what you thought you were owed, and what it meant for you to actually follow after me. So there's an interpretation and an expectation issue. And in that space, then let me ask you again, what is it that you're struggling with with doubt in your life? And could it be not only is there a space where God's showing mercy, but could it be that there's a space of expectations and a space of interpretation? And again, Jesus is welcoming you into the light to ask all of your questions. He's not freaked out by your questions. It doesn't create tension or a problem for him for you to struggle with doubt. He actually welcomes it and wants you to actually speak them because it does take the power out of them. And I don't know if you thought that like faith meant that you would never doubt. And maybe you've wondered, like, if you have doubts, does that mean you no longer believe? But I think anytime you face sadness and loss and hurt and need and insecurity and pain and anger, in those spaces, you actually always start with doubt. And what happens in maturing faith is that you learn to hold on to both doubt and faith at the same time by bringing your questions to Jesus, which is what John actually shows us. I asked my daughter permission to share the story. Uh, when we were doing daddy-daughter dates early on, kind of in her kind of, you know, early elementary ages, we would go once a week and share a bagel and just kind of hang out. Sometimes we would write stories. Sometimes we'd play Legos. Sometimes we'd sing songs. Sometimes we would talk about Jesus. Sometimes we'd ask, hey, what do you wish was different about our family? It was just like anything goes kind of moment. And one time we're talking about doubts. And Elizabeth just said, I don't know if I can believe because I have all these questions. I have all these doubts. Um, And I said, oh, sweetie, like, I've got a ton of doubts. Like, there's lots of questions that I, I have. Like you can have doubts and still believe. It's actually all over the scriptures. And you could just watch her little wheels turning in her mind of going, oh, wait a second. I thought it was an either or, not a both and. I thought faithfulness meant I've got all the answers and to believe and trust Jesus meant I didn't actually struggle with doubts. And I think actually hearing her dad say, hey, I still have a ton of doubts, I think was actually helpful for her. Maybe you hear your pastor say, hey man, I've got a ton of doubts. There's a ton of stuff that I don't understand. There's lots of stories I read in the Bible that I'm not sure what to do with. There's moments in my life I can't make sense of. There's things I watch in the world around us that I don't know what to do with. There's things in your life as you suffer and as you walk with God faithfully and things are really difficult that I don't have great answers for. And yet, I think belief kind of exists in those places because those doubts are designed to bring us to Jesus. They're not meant to push us away or get your doubts answered and then come to Jesus. You actually bring your doubts to Jesus. You have these two peaks in this passage. One of dangerous unbelief that refuses to do that, that watches the miracles of Jesus and says, no, I won't repent, I won't respond. And another one is redemptive doubt of of a man who's suffering tremendously, whose expectations have not been met. It did not go the way John thought it was going to go. And in that spot, what we see is an example for all of us to bring those places of frustration and pain directly to Jesus in ways that he actually then speaks a word to us and changes us. And we said often it's going to be this both and or it's mercy and justice, which is what we see most clearly on the cross of Jesus. The reason why we take communion every single Sunday here is to remind us of this centerpiece of the narrative that that at the essence of our faith is this justice and mercy that that are impacting injustice. That, That the most innocent person ever is unjustly accused and 
crucified. It's the most horrible thing in all of history that could have happened. And it's the most beautiful thing in all of history that could have happened to make a way for us to actually be rescued and saved and redeemed. And I want that to be the starting place where you re-ask this question of your doubt. Hey, what are, what's falling apart? What's not going the way you hoped? What are you struggling to interpret rightly? Where are you struggling with unbelief, actually, and you're resisting God, saying he doesn't deserve your affection or allegiance because of what he's done? Where are you struggling to actually follow and believe with your doubts? And could you start at the cross of Jesus, where he answers questions of, like, is he trustworthy? Is he loving? The resurrection says he's powerful. Does he have a plan? Oh, man, from the very beginning of time, this was the plan to come and absorb the wrath of our sin on himself and make a way for us to be forgiven and free. That's what we celebrate at communion, and it becomes the grounding place for us to ask all the other doubts. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and take communion in a moment. And as you do, bring your doubt with you. And, and ask as you hold this little cup of, or this little bread, and you dip it into the juice, ask that complex, mysterious moment of the mixture of God's justice and mercy to speak to this complex moment of your heart and your doubt. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're here. This is the kind of community where you can struggle. It's the kind of community where you can have doubts, the kind of community where you can ask really hard questions. You're not going to freak us out. It's okay for you to have hard questions about sexuality, about the Bible, about Jesus, about your future, about your past, about what's going on in the world around. You can have all of those questions and belong here, and we can actually engage with each other around those questions, not because we're so smart, but because we think Jesus really cares about them and his word actually speaks to them. So if you're here and not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful you're here. Just use this time to pray. You know where you're struggling and what you're wrestling with. Just bring that to Jesus in ways that he could actually speak to you and ask him to address that space in your heart. Don't take communion. Just stay in your seat there and actually take Jesus would be the next step for you. But for those who are trusting Christ, I want to invite you to come and take communion. The way we do it, we'll come down the middle aisle. You'll take a piece of bread, then you'll dip it into the cup. The server will say, it's the body of Jesus broken for you. It's his blood shed for your life. And you'll take that and eat with joy and ask that to ground your doubts. And to the right over here, to your left, is a gluten-free station that has uh, wafers there and juice. There's also some little individual packets. If that's more comfortable for you because of COVID, you can grab one of those. But bring your doubts to Jesus' sacrifice and let that reorient your expectations and be an interpretive lens. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Help us now in this place to hear your voice. Help us have the courage to bring our doubts to you. And would you speak to them through your word and through what you did for us on the cross. I pray that would speak loudly to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.